the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with Michelle Howell in the second hour of today's program. She's the author of Preparing, Adjusting, and Loving the Empty Nest. It is a companion to her earlier book, Empty Nest, What's Next? Now, you might assume this is a book about what to do with yourselves once the nest is empty. But what the book is really about is how you as parents can responsibly raise young people to become adults who are capable of managing uh, life independently. We'll talk with her about that coming up in the five o'clock hour. Also, a reminder, all of the pastors, associates and uh, um, spouses that uh, tomorrow morning is the pastor appreciation breakfast at the embassy suites by the Hilton Portland Airport on Northeast 82nd, eight o'clock a.m. We're going to have a wonderful time together. And I'm looking forward to uh, just saying thank you to pastors and teachers, teachers rather, who serve among us. And that is our whole goal. So that's coming up tomorrow morning. There's a free breakfast. We'll be at the Embassy Suites Hotel, and we have an opportunity to hear from Brian Chapel. He's uh, the uh, teaching pastor at Unlimited Grace Radio Ministry, and uh, all of those of you who are planning to attend, you'll be entered to win a two-night stay at the Lazy Moon Lodge in Eagle Crest at the resort. So uh, looking forward to seeing many of you there. Again, that's coming up tomorrow morning at 8. Well, several uh, raging wildfires have uh, whipped wind and fires and forced evacuations this morning in California. And the famed uh, wine country, the Governor Jerry Brown declared a state of emergency. Officials estimated at least 1,500 homes and commercial buildings were destroyed. California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection Director Ken uh, Pimlot said an estimated 20,000 people have been evacuated as 14 large fires burn there. The fires are burning throughout an eight-county swath of Northern California, including uh, Napa, Sonoma, and Yuba counties. Uh, there will be no initial reports, or there have been, rather, uh, no initial reports of injuries or death. I have since heard uh, some potential injuries. Um, Mr. Bierman said at a news conference earlier today, right now with these conditions, we can't get ahead of this fire and do anything about the forward progress. Well, mandatory evacuations were ordered for multiple locations in counties north of San Francisco. The Sonoma County Sheriff's Office said there were multiple fires reported around the county, including a very large fire that jumped a freeway and spread into the east side of Santa Rosa. Multiple fires broke out on Sunday night as uh, strong winds buffeted that area. Emergency lines were uh, inundated with callers reporting smoke in the area, prompting officials to ask that the public only use 911 uh, if they see actual unattended flames or at having another emergency. Officials in Sonoma County said all Santa Rosa City schools will be closed uh, due to the fires. Um, the Tubbs fire between Santa Rosa and Calistoga alone grew from 200 acres to 20,000 acres by Monday morning. Uh, that's uh, obviously a, a dramatic increase. This fire is explosive. The uh, battalion chief 
for the um, uh, call fire said, adding that hundreds, if not thousands of structures were impacted. Uh, One other spokesman said he heard of some people injured while trying to evacuate but could not be specific. We're still saving lives at the moment. This fire has gotten explosive due to the wind. Well, the Santa Rosa, rather in Santa Rosa, one uh, Ron Dodds speaking to KTVU uh, has said helping uh, he was helping his uncle evacuate, said people were running red lights. Uh, There was chaos ensuing because the fire was moving very quickly. It's a scary time. It's like Armageddon. Well, I can pretty much promise you it'll be worse than that, but I think you get the idea. Patients from Kaiser Permanente and Sutter Health Hospitals uh, were evacuated earlier today from Santa Rosa, taken to another nearby hospital or hospitals or makeshift hospitals as they're trying to escape the uh, encroaching flames. In neighboring Napa County, officials were battling a 200-acre fire south of Lake Berryessa, located about 65 miles west of Sacramento. Fire officials said the Atlas fire broke out at about 950. 50 p.m. local time was uh, 0% contained. California Fire Deputy Chief Scott um, McLean, he called the conditions very volatile. People need to be careful. Um, The chairwoman of the Napa Board of Supervisors said officials didn't yet have a count on how many properties were affected, either by the fire directly or by evacuations. We're focusing on many evacuations, trying to keep people safe. We're not prepared to start counting, certainly uh, with day just uh, breaking now. She spoke uh, this morning. We're starting to see the structures that are affected. And as I mentioned earlier, they at uh, the earlier count had 1,500 structures lost in Northern California in that firestorm among the worst in the state's history. Uh, 14 fires ravaged eight counties throughout Northern California late Sunday and this morning. The vast devastation over just a few hours made the firestorm one of the worst in California history, with the governor declaring a state of emergency there. Again, no deaths have been reported, thankfully, but there have been injuries and people are unaccounted for. A spokesperson for the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. She couldn't estimate the number of injuries, but again, they're trying to save lives at this point and will start counting at some play, some point. Uh, in the future. Meanwhile, Hurricane Nate made landfall near the mouth of the Mississippi River on Saturday evening as a Category 1 storm with maximum winds of about 85 miles per hour. As of um, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Nate was uh, located about 10 miles south of the mouth of Mississippi River and about 100 miles south of Biloxi, Mississippi. It was a Category 1 storm with maximum winds of 90 miles per hour, forecasters said Uh, Nate could dump three to six inches of rain on the region with isolated totals of up to uh, 10 inches. Uh, Something of a relief from what we've seen in earlier storms, unless you're in the eye of it. Mississippi's six southernmost counties declared a state of emergency with the state's emergency management director calling Nate the worst hurricane that has impacted Mississippi since Hurricane Katrina. Everyone needs to understand that, uh, Lee Smithson told reporters, this is a significantly dangerous situation. Nate was expected to pass to the east of New Orleans, sparing the city its most ferocious winds and storm surge. However, the storm could pose a major threat to uh, for the city's fragile pumping and drainage system. Uh, key weaknesses, including the failure of some pumps and power-generating turbines, uh, were exposed uh, after the August 5th deluge flooding homes and businesses in some sections of the city, according to city officials. So um, natural disasters uh, occurring 
uh, at uh, both ends of the uh, of the continent. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Our time is about um, 14 minutes after four o'clock. As I mentioned, in the five o'clock hour, we're talking with Michelle Howe. She's the author of Preparing, Adjusting and Loving the Empty Nest. She's talking about preparing, adjusting, and loving the empty nest long before it is the empty nest. It's a companion to her earlier work, Empty Nest, What's Next? So she'll join us in the 5 o'clock hour. All right, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a former Army veteran and police officer killed in last Sunday's Las Vegas shooting was honored by thousands on Thursday night as friends and colleagues hailed Charleston Hartfield as one of the greatest Americans they ever knew. Hartfield, a 16-year Army veteran who served in Iraq, was known as Charles Chuck and Chucky Hart. Uh, but one longtime friend and colleague dubbed him Captain America. Charlie Hart was the greatest American I had ever known, Sergeant Ryan Fryman told the crowd in Las Vegas, who raised candles and surrounded Hartfield's widow and two children. Hartfield was among the first uh, memorials for the dead, whose identities have now all been released by authorities. The 58 victims killed ranged in age from 20 to 67. Two of them, 24-year-old Austin Cooper Meyer and 61-year-old Brett uh, Schwanbeck um, had not been identified before by the Clark County coroner. They released that complete list by Thursday night. Hartfield joined the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department in 2002 after serving as part of the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, the vigil began with a color guard display and words from a chaplain, Mrs. Uh, Veronica Hartfield and her two sons, a boy and a girl. Um, well, that can't be right. Two sons and her a boy and a girl sat in the front row. She didn't speak during the ceremony, but officers gave their condolence and uh, praised the life and work ethic of her now deceased husband. Charlie was the hardest working man I've ever known. He did this for his family, a Metro officer said. Uh, another officer said faith and family were the most important to Charlie. Both Hartfields were attending the Route 69 Harvest Festival, but only Veronica managed to escape unharmed. No person was ever honored for what uh, he received. Honor has been the reward for what he gave, one officer said. Reading a quote from Calvin Coolidge, chosen by Hartfield to honor fallen colleagues. One of his fellow officers, Jake uh, Grunwald, had said, uh, set up a GoFundMe page for the Hartfeld family, the first to be mourned uh, in the series of uh, deaths that occurred this last weekend in Las Vegas. Meanwhile, Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl is expected to plead guilty later this month to desertion and misbehavior before the enemy rather than face trial for leaving his Afghanistan post in 2009. The Associated Press is reporting. Two sources said the Idaho native would submit the plea later this month and sentencing would uh, start on the 23rd of this month. Um, uh, Bergdahl's lawyer declined to comment when contacted. He faces up to five years in prison on the desertion charge and a lifetime sentence for misbehavior. Bergdahl is 31. He was serving with the Alaska-based Infantry Regiment. Uh, he deserted his Afghanistan post in 2009 when he was 23 years old and was held captive by the Taliban for about five years. The Taliban posted a video online showing Bergdahl saying he was scared and he would not be able to uh, go home. Well, Bergdahl said that he had been uh, caged, kept in the darkness, beaten and chained to a bed when he was kept captive. The Army sergeant claimed he was uh, lagging behind a patrol when he was captured. He also said he left his post to alert people about problems he perceived within his unit. Unit. Investigators said Bergdahl suffered from 
um, schizoid pal personality, a disorder at the uh, time he left the post. In December of that year, 2009, the Taliban released another video showing Bergdahl apparently healthy and delivering a lengthy statement criticizing the U.S. military operation. He was released in May of 2014 for five Taliban detainees locked in Guantanamo Bay by the Obama administration. The exchange was viewed as controversial at the time due to the debate about negotiating with hostage takers. The exchange also fueled a debate about whether Bergdahl was a hero or a deserter. President Obama uh, stood with Bergdahl's uh, parents in the White House Rose Garden and defended the swap. The U.S. does not leave our men or women in uniform behind, he said at the time, regardless of how Bergdahl came to be captured. Whatever those circumstances may turn out to be, we still get an American soldier back if he's held in captivity, uh, the former president said, period, full stop. Well, many viewers noticed uh, Bergdahl's father, Bob, uh, and his uh, long beard as he stood next to the Obamas. The Washington Post responded that Bob Bergdahl read books and articles about the foreign world that held his son. He also learned how to speak uh, Pashto, the official language of the Afghans. Uh, he told uh, Time magazine he started growing his beard after learning that his son had been captured. Uh, it wasn't clear if it was in an effort to um, speak to or somehow gain the um, the support of the Afghans who were holding him. In March of 2015, he was formally charged, um, Bergdahl. In December, he requested a pardon from then-President Obama before he left office. The pardon was not granted. Some of Bergdahl's fellow soldiers want him to be held responsible for any harm suffered by those who went looking for him. The judge ruled a Navy SEAL and an Army National Guard sergeant wouldn't have found themselves in separate firefights if they hadn't been searching for Bergdahl. The U.S. troops who were seriously wounded during their uh, search for Bergdahl in Afghanistan were expected to testify uh, during the presidential campaign. Donald Trump called Bergdahl's uh, Bergdahl rather a dirty, rotten traitor. That's a quote during a town hall meeting in August of 2015. He also tweeted in 2015 that Bergdahl should face the death penalty. The courts ultimately will decide. That is not a role for the president. Meanwhile, Nigerian forces have discovered the body of a fourth U.S. soldier killed in an ambush earlier this week. U.S. officials uh, say the unidentified soldier had initially been reported missing after the attack on Wednesday last. Authorities fear the soldiers were being held hostage by a militant group, but officials say that there were no signs the soldiers had been kidnapped or tortured. The other three fallen Green Berets were identified earlier uh, as decorated soldiers based out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Staff Sergeant Brian Black, 35, from Puyallup, Washington, enlisted in the Army in 2009, and he received numerous awards, including the Army Good Conduct Medal and the Global War on Terrorism Service Medal. Staff Sergeant Jeremiah Johnson, 39, from Springboro, Ohio, joined in 2007 and has earned the Army Commendation Medal and Army Achievement Medal, among other distinctions. Staff Sergeant Justin Wright, 29, from Lyons, Georgia, enlisted in 2012 and also has won numerous awards, such as the Joint Service Achievement Medal and Special Forces uh, tab. Ten Green Beret, bring Beret, ten Green Berets. Let's get that right. Were part of a routine joint patrol accompanying Nigerian um, forces when they were attacked uh, 120 miles north of the West African country's capital. Uh, Niger's uh, army chief of uh, staff reported that the ambush killed four Nigerian soldiers and injured 
eight others. The U.S. military has uh, been training local forces to fight in fact al-Qaeda there in the Islamic uh, Maghreb and other uh, militants in West Africa for over a decade. There are now some 6,000 U.S. troops on the African continent, 800 of whom are now on the ground in Niger. So we've lost uh, four U.S. soldiers um, last week. Arguably, the federal government's first obligation to Americans is to keep us safe from foreign attacks and to defend our vital national interests wherever they are threatened. Well, alarmingly, our government is on the verge of failing in this core responsibility. Our military is minimally ready, rapid, rapidly aging, and has so shrunk in size that even senior military leaders question its ability to adequately meet its national security obligations. Well, this is a disservice to Americans in general, and most especially to those who are tasked with carrying out the duty of protecting our nation. Dakota Wood, writing for the Daily Signal, points out that two weeks ago, voicing his concerns about the military's condition and the impact that restricted funding is having on America's security, Secretary of Defense James Mattis was quite blunt, saying, and I quote, nothing has done more damage to the readiness of our armed forces than the continuing resolutions that stop us from taking initiative, uh, than the lack of of budgetary predictability. I bring this up because if we don't get budgetary predictability, if we don't remove the defense caps, uh, then we're uh, questioning whether or not America has the ability to survive. It's that simple, end quote. General Daniel Allen, uh, until recently, the vice chair of uh, chief of staff of the Army, has testified that only one third of the uh, of our BCTs, brigade combat teams, uh, one fourth of our combat aviation brigades, and half of our division headquarters are considered ready. Let me repeat that for perspective. One-third of the brigade combat teams, one-fourth of our combat aviation brigades, and half of our division headquarters are considered ready. Currently, of the Army's 31 brigade combat teams, only three would be available to immediately deploy to a conflict. And with all the saber rattling and the exchange of insults between the United States and North Korea, this gives us some perspective on whether or not we are ready to address uh, the possibility of conflict there. The Air Force is 24 percent short of the fight. It needs and is short 1,000 pilots and over 3,000 maintainers. Only four of its 32 combat-coded squadrons are ready to execute all wartime missions. Prior to 1991, the Air Force purchased more than 500 aircraft a year to offset platforms aging out of inventory. Since then, it has uh, averaged fewer than 100 per year. The Marine Corps is insufficiently manned, trained, and equipped across the depth of the forces to operate in an ever-evolving operational environment, according to General Glenn Walters, Walters, rather, Assistant Command of the Marine Corps. This past December, the Corps reported that less than half of its aviation platforms were considered flyable. Less than half. As for um, as for the Navy, well, it's uh, it has two thirds the ships it did near the end of the Cold War, its battle fleet being the smallest since World War One. The recent set of ship collisions in the Western Pacific implies severe problems in basic ship handling skills. How is it possible that the military that won World War II and successfully kept World War III from happening, achieving peace through strength, has decayed to such a point even while it's uh, sustained operations for 16 years in distant theaters? Well, notably because our government has failed to recognize the difference between its obligation to provide for the common defense and its desire to squander taxpayer dollars on projects of choice rather than of necessity or responsibility. Now, the government has failed and continues to fail in allocating resources commensurate with America's security interests that seem to be ever broadening. Well, through the index of the military of U.S. military strength, um, uh, citizens are 
being encouraged to uh, follow very closely the government uh, with regard to the status of threats to America, the ability of our military to successfully defend the country when called upon to do so. Threats are growing at the same uh, time that our military is declining, and unless uh, this imbalance is corrected, and soon Mattis uh, fears um, may be realized. And again, just a sobering assessment of what those who are charged with overseeing and assessing our capability to defend ourselves and uh, maintain national security. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Michelle Howe. She's the author of Preparing, Adjusting, and Loving the Empty Nest. It's a companion to her earlier book, uh, Empty Nest, What's Next? And it's not so much about um, what you do once the kids are out of the house, but how to raise them in such a way that they will ultimately be out of the house because they're capable of living independently. So we'll talk with her about that in the next hour. Well, the Weinstein Company of the film studio announced Sunday that its directors have fired the movie mogul Harvey Weinstein after the New York Times reported he settled sexual harassment lawsuits with at least eight women in light of the new information about misconduct uh, that has emerged in the past few days. The directors of the Weinstein Company uh, and then it names names have determined and have informed Harvey that his employment with the Weinstein Company is terminated, effective immediately, the company's board of representatives said in a statement given um, to the broader media. Well, his alleged inappropriate behavior in the last 30 years was detailed in a bombshell Times report published on Thursday. In it, actress Ashley Judd described being lured uh, to his hotel room, and I won't go into the details. Uh, The report also detailed encounters he allegedly had with other women working for his company. Uh, In the days since the allegations first surfaced, several key allies have uh, backed off of the mogul in supporting him. His lawyer, Lisa Bloom, and advisor, Lonnie Davis, resigned on Saturday, and uh, nearly one-third of the company's board resigned on Friday, according to Variety magazine. The report also alleged that his brother and chief operating officer were uh, push, uh, pushing him for, pushing rather, for his firing. Both men are now in control of the company. Well, in the wake of the report, many congressional Democrats, including Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Elizabeth Warren, have given money they received as a donation uh, to charity. Weinstein and his family have given more than $1.4 million in political contributions since 1992's election cycle, nearly all of it to Democratic lawmakers, candidates, and their allies, according to the nonpartisan Center for Responsive Government. Weinstein on Thursday issued a lengthy statement that acknowledged that a lot of pain was caused. I came of age in the 60s and 70s when all the rules about behavior in workplaces were different. Well, they weren't that different. He went on to say that was the culture then. Hmm. I have since learned it's uh, not an excuse in the office or out of it. To anyone, I realized some uh, time ago that I needed to be a better person and my interactions with the people I work with have changed. I appreciate the way I've behaved with colleagues in the past uh, has caused a lot of pain, and I sincerely apologize for it. Well, let's hope that's a sincere statement and that changes will be made. Well, Weinstein and his uh, legal team have also um, uh, criticized the New York Times report in statements and interviews. They also announced in the days after 
uh, that he was intending to file a lawsuit against the newspaper for $50 million in damages. It's not clear whether or not that's going to move forward. We are confident in the accuracy of our reporting. A New York Times spokesman responded. Mr. Weinstein was aware of and able to respond to specific allegations in our story before publication. In fact, we published his response in full. The bottom line being that he is out and those to whom he had contributed financially, at least two, have indicated they intend to return uh, the funds. Meanwhile, Jimmy Kimmel said just a few days ago, we pray for the victims and for their families and friends. And we wonder why, even though there's probably no way to ever know why a human being would do something like this to other human beings. He was, of course, referring to what happened in Las Vegas. A late night comedian turned progressive propagandist. Uh, Kimmel may not know why people like Stephen Paddock commit heinous acts, but he is certainly um, uh, he is certain rather who's to blame for them. Kimmel says we should blame Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, a number of other lawmakers who um, uh, who won't do anything about this because the NRA has. Uh, well, I won't say what he says the NRA has, but adding that they should all be praying for God to forgive them for letting the gun lobby run this country, end quote. The gun lobby running the country. Now, that's a phrase that's often repeated. According to OpenSecrets.org, since 1998, the largest amount of money donated to uh, clients advocating for gun rights, not just the NRA, but the other seven gun rights organizations who also received donations, was just under $15.3 million for the year 2013. This year, they uh, have given $5.7 million to protect the nation's Second Amendment rights. So in perspective, not quite the... Uh, uh, the cash cow that some have expected. Now, McConnell and Ryan, when the Senate majority leader was running for reelection in 2014, the NRA gave McConnell $9,900, or about 0.03% of the $31 million raised by his campaign. In 2016, Ryan received $5,950, which amounted to the same uh, 0.03% of the $20 million raised by the House Speaker's campaign. So pretty small amounts. Nonetheless, Kimmel and a large number of other celebrities in Hollywood love to rail about the undue influence the NRA and anyone else who supports the Second Amendment have on the nation's culture of violence. Or as Kimmel piously referred, uh, his second uh, monologue on the subject, our dirty business as usual. Now, Arnold uh, Allert, uh, writing for the Patriot Post, uh, points this out. How influential is Hollywood in promoting violence? A December 2013 study published in the American Academy of Pediatrics revealed gun violence in PG-13 rated films more than tripled since PG-13 ratings in 1985 when it was introduced. Uh, moreover, three quarters of the same celebrities who signed or supported a letter saying they'd had enough of unnecessary gun violence following the terrorist attacks in San Bernardino have no problem promoting violence in their own movies. Celebrities like Jamie Foxx, who starred in Law Abiding Citizen, described by IMB as a movie with strong, bloody, brutal violence and torture, a scene of rape or pervasive language, as well as Django Unchanged, Chained rather, another highly violent movie directed by uh, cop basher Quentin Tarantino, whose entire career has been dedicated to the production of ultra-violent movies. Now, celebrities like Jessica Alba, who stars in Machete Kills, and Liam Neeson, who starred in the extremely violent Taken and its two equally violent sequels, Taken 2 and Taken 3. 
The same Liam Neeson Kimmel welcomed as a guest on his uh, September 27th show. And not just movies. Hollywood has also uh, produced a plethora of violent and gory TV programs, such as American Horror Story, The Walking Dead, Boardwalk Empire, and Hannibal. One of them, Dexter, goes so far as to humanize a serial killer turned vigilante, showcasing all manner of bloody vengeance over the course of its eight seasons of mayhem, as uh, columnist Robert Yanitz explains. Other progressive-dominated entertainment venues are no better. The music business produces innumerable songs promoting violence or anti-police agendas, and there's no shortage of violent video games available for public, often adolescent consumption. Is there any correlation between violent entertainment and actual violence? There is now consensus that exposure to media violence is linked to actual violent behavior, a link found by many scholars to be on par with the correlation of exposure to secondhand smoke and the risk of lung cancer. The New York Times reported in 2013 in a meta-analysis of 217 studies published between 1957 and 1990, a psychologist, George Comstock, and uh, another psychologist, Hei Jing Pak, found that the short-term effect of exposure to media violence on actual physical violence against a person was moderate to large in strength. No doubt, but... It is unlikely to engender anything resembling a paradigm shift among the nation's current purveyors. In a column for The Federalist, Brad Slager explains that Hollywood studios are profit-driven and they create a cultural product of gun-steeped content for the direct purpose of generating revenues. The industry touts guns, lovingly displays firearms, and glorifies the violence the weapons can deliver. All of this for the singular purpose of turning a profit. Regardless of progressive belief, um, uh, uh, gun violence in America is supposed to, uh, is supported rather by conservatives with Second Amendment obsessions. And when you get the to the unhinged part of the spectrum, you get columns like the likes of the San Francisco Gate Mark Morford, who insists that white men with guns are America's real terrorists and that the NRA is America's truest terrorist organization, akin to death cult, one fueled by and uh, openly openly promoting only the most fearful aspects of the human psyche. It is a calculated message. It's intended and it's destroying us from within, end quote. Well, unfortunately for Morfitt and his fellow travelers, actual statistics, as opposed to hysterical narratives, reveal a decidedly different picture. According to the Centers for Disease Control, firearm-related homicides fell from seven um, uh, for every 100,000 Americans in 1993 to 3.6 per 100,000 Americans by 2013. In 2012, a Congressional Research Service report revealed the number of firearms privately owned by Americans rose uh, from about 185 million in 1993 to 357 million in 2013. Um, Hawkins connected the stats from the two trends, revealing an inconvenient truth. The gun homicide rate decreased by 49 percent, while gun ownership ownership increased by 56 percent. Are the trends related? Correlation doesn't necessarily imply causation, but it certainly implies law-abiding gun owners aren't the problem. Part of the trend is likely due to better policing, and while there are countless stories about gun owners preventing violence, it also stands to reason that many stories of what didn't happen go completely unreported, even as every gun death requires a report to be filed. One thing is certain, gun sales skyrocketed during the Obama administration, reaching about 52,600 per day, according to the FBI, prompting CNN's Aaron Smith to assert the former president was the greatest gun salesman in America. Again, no correlation implying causation, but progressives might reflect on the, dis- the distinct possibility that their constant threat to water down 
uh, or eviscerate the Second Amendment is uh, actually achieving exactly the opposite of what uh, is desired. And as Slager aptly notes, progressives might be better off taking on a Hollywood entertainment industry that relies on guns for corporate earnings and glorifies guns in the process. In the meantime, sources close to Kimmel say the comedian in response to a sensible Trump supporters who don't like his criticism has decided to increase security. He's putting highly trained off-duty police officers at the entrances to his show. Most police officers are required to carry guns both on duty and off. Most celebrity progressives are immune to their protection for me, but not for the hypocrisy. Just a broader look at a very troubling issue. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up next hour, we'll talk with Michelle Howe. She's the author of Preparing, Adjusting, and Loving the Empty Nest. It's a companion to her earlier book, Empty Nest. What's next? She'll join us later in the next hour. Well, a Senate campaign ad by Republican Representative Marsha Blackburn was blocked on Twitter because of a statement she made in the spot about the sale of fetal tissue for medical research. Uh, She's a Tennessee representative. She's running to fill the retiring uh, Senator Bob Corker's seat, who announced he's not going to run. She said in an ad that she stopped the uh, sale of baby body parts. Well, Twitter told Blackburn's campaign in an email Uh, that the line was deemed inflammatory, uh, that it's likely to invoke a strong negative reaction. Well, yeah. The line in full states, I'm 100% pro-life. I fought Planned Parenthood and we stopped the sale of baby body parts. Thank God, end quote. Well, the social media platform said it would uh, run Blackburn's ad if the statement in question were omitted. Censorship, some might call it. Well, she wasn't uh, blocked from tweeting it on her own account, and the campaign account tweeted the ad Monday afternoon and asked users to retweet the message as a way to join me in standing up to Silicon Valley. Blackburn was the chair of the Republican-run House panel, creating an investigative Planned Parenthood and fetal tissue research The panel urged Congress to stop federal payments to the Women's Health Organization. And as I mentioned uh, last week, the FBI is considering whether or not to move forward with an investigation, a criminal investigation into into, uh, Planned Parenthood and several other organizations uh, connected to it with this uh, fetal tissue sale. Uh, Democrats alleged that uh, the GOP investigation has found no wrongdoing and wasted taxpayers' money in an abusive investigation. The panel was created after... Uh, Activists secretly recorded videos back in 2015 showing Planned Parenthood officials discussing how they sometimes provide fetal tissue to researchers, which is um, legal if not profit, if no profit is made. They also talked about how they would adjust the procedures in order to make harvesting particular uh, body parts more profitable. Well, fetal tissue research has strong backing among scientists for its value in studying Down syndrome, eye disease, and other problems. But Blackburn's uh, committee report said fetal tissue makes a vanishingly small contribution to clinical research efforts if it's uh, if it contributes at all, and recommended curbing federal grants for such research. Well, Blackburn's uh, nearly two and a half minute video also features footage of her shooting a gun and taking fellow Republicans in the Senate to task for failing to repeal Obamacare, which isn't really relevant to this particular element that's been censored uh, by uh, Twitter. But nonetheless, um, uh, she's had to try to do a workaround uh, to arrive at the message that she was attempting to uh, attempting to convey. Now, it's interesting to see how uh, social media is increasingly determining what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. We're not talking about Uh, violent language or language that incites, but rather stating a fact um, uh, being censored by 
the so-called uh, individuals whose job it is to determine what's appropriate and what's not. Well, the DeKalb County School District in Georgia, they're facing a backlash after a sexual identity assignment was given to the sixth graders of Lithonia Middle School. Well, the middle school's health teacher assigned a quiz. It defined 10 sexual identity terms as gay, lesbian, transgender. The quiz required the sixth graders to identify and differentiate between various orientations and identities. One mother, Octavia Parks, was particularly shocked when her 12-year-old daughter, 12, came home with the assignment. Why are they teaching that in school? Mom asked daughter. Uh, What does that have to do with life? Well, the better question would have been, what does that have to do with academics? Parks felt that the material was not appropriate for schools and that her daughter was uh, too young to learn about sexual orientation. We're talking about a sixth grader who still watches Nickelodeon. I'm not ready to explain what these words are, uh, nor what they mean. Well, Parks recalled... Um, an earlier conversation with a health teacher during which she was assured that such material would not be taught. We had a brief conversation and she assured me that this sort of thing would not happen, Park said. Nonetheless, it's happening. A cautionary tale for parents who want to know what's being said, what's not being said, so that they can be prepared. Now Parks has uh, signed a consent form to remove her daughter from the health class. She's not the only parent to find uh, fault with the controversial quiz. Another mother if the, of a past Lith- Lithonia middle school student agreed that the material is inappropriate for that aged uh, child. She also said that the sexual orientation quiz was not part of the health class curriculum, not her daughter's uh, it, uh, when her daughter rather was in school. If a kid wants to know about the gender or know about sex preferences, it should come from parents, not from the school. A debate that's been going on, well, since sex education began. Um, DCSB um, has been made aware of this alleged event and is working to verify it, its authenticity. Alleged event authenticity. We will investigate this event and take action as appropriate once that investigation is completed. The spokesperson uh, for the district said uh, Park uh, plans to bring her concern to the school district headquarters uh, as soon as the fall break ends. I will be removing her from that class, and I'm also going to take it to the Board of Education to see what they have to say about it. She went on to say the questions were something like a woman who is attracted to a woman. And then you fill in the blank. A man who is attracted to a man. This is for a sixth graders. a person who is attracted to both men and women. You fill in the blank. A man who is attracted to women or women, a woman or women uh, who is attracted to just goes kind of on from there. I'd have a hard time with some of these a little bit. Um, who's on first. Uh, anyway, in Georgia, parents are a little upset and were surprised to learn that what they were told would be acceptable in the classroom, uh, what would be part of the curriculum, um, it has in fact made its way uh, into a quiz that their child was in fact given. Well, today is the 9th of uh, October. By the way, we'll talk in the next hour about Columbus Day. That's what today is, used to be, may never be again. We'll get into that. But North Korea could use what is for them a holiday as an excuse to provoke the U.S., according to some experts. This week marks two significant dates for North Korea and at the anniversaries of its first nuclear test and the foundation of the ruling Workers' Party of Korea. Now, officials have warned that North Korea could use the special dates, in particular the 10th, that's tomorrow, the anniversary of the Workers' Party, which coincides with Columbus Day in the United States, to provoke the U.S. or launch a new missile. There is a clarity of purpose in what North Korea Kim Jong-un is doing. I don't think he's done. Yong Suk Lee, who's the deputy assistant director of the CIA's Korean Mission Center, said in a conference last week, 
Uh, In fact, I told my own staff uh, that October 10th is the Korean Workers' Party founding day. That's Tuesday in North Korea, but Monday, the Columbus Day holiday in the United States. So stand by your phones. Well, whether or not uh, it's going to be a useful day, we'll just have to wait and see. As North Korea's past provocations have coincided with dates important to them, the U.S., China, and Japan, uh, the Kim Koo Korea Foundation professor of uh, Korean studies at the Fletcher School at uh, Tufts University, uh, Dr. Song Yun Lee, predicted the East Asian country could test a missile by uh, late Monday night. North Korea has said it uh, had a perfect success with its hydrogen bomb test back in September Uh, Labor Day uh, weekend in the U.S. It said it tested its first nuclear bomb on the 9th of uh, October in 2006, coinciding with the the, uh, party's Foundation Day in North Korea. Other nuclear uh, tests have lined up with the uh, Memorial Day weekend in the U.S. in 2009, Lunar New Year celebrations in China in 2013, Kim Jong-un's birthday in 2016, and the day of the foundation of the republic in 2016. North Korea has also tested its uh, first successful intercontinental ballistic missile on the 4th of July. I have a feeling that they're uh, ready for provocation and they're bidding, uh, biding their time, rather, for the most adverse impact, Lee says. He predicted that the country could fire a missile into the waters by Guam, which would elicit a response that would still be less than uh, if Americans were killed. Well, we'll just have to keep um, listening and watching There's no question a provocation is coming. It's just a matter of whether or not it will be linked to some special date on the calendar. Well, the time is 5 o'clock. We're going to take a quick break for news and traffic at the top of the hour. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Michelle Howell, her book, Preparing, Adjusting, and Loving the Empty Nest. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blind is producing. Later this hour, we'll talk with Michelle Howe. She's the author of Preparing, Adjusting, and Loving the Empty Nest. It's a companion to her earlier work. She's the author of 17 books, including Caring for Our Aging Parents, Lessons in Love, Loss, and Letting Go, Empty Nest, What's Next, Parenting Adult Children Without Losing Your Mind. She has published over a 1,000 articles. She's been featured on radio shows across the country speaking on parenting and women's health issues. She'll be joining us this afternoon to talk about her latest book, Preparing, Adjusting, and Loving the Empty Nest, a companion to her earlier work. Well, this may be the last time we can celebrate Columbus Day across the country. As you know, it's been a controversy uh, for quite some time. A wave of cities have decided to remove the holiday from the calendar, replace it with Indigenous Peoples Day. Christopher Columbus, the Italian explorer credited with discovering America, at least for his people, and his legacy are under attack figuratively and increasingly literally. Many of the monuments erected to his memory and his accomplishments have been damaged, if not destroyed. Several Columbus uh, monuments uh, were attacked, vandalized around the country. The towering uh, Columbus statue at Columbus uh, Circle in New York City now needs 24-hour guards after the mayor um, uh, put it on the list of a commission to review offensive memorials. And according to um, a Far Left Watch, a watchdog organization, Antifa and other left-wing groups plan to deface and attack Columbus statues across the country on Columbus Day. It's not surprising. It's happened before, but I suppose the intensity has increased. Um, it once was, or rather he was once a uniting figure for most Americans, not all. He represented courage, optimism, and even uh, immigrants, and uh, it has been in the crosshairs for destruction since, and most recently. Columbus is the man who made um, the existence of, of the country as it exists possible, as peoples from other parts of the world 
uh, were uh, were brought here. A few historians and activists started to attack Columbus's legacy in the late 20th century. They uh, they developed a narrative of Columbus as a rapacious pillager and a genocidal maniac, whether it was intentional or not. A historian, Howard Zinn, for example, in particular, had a huge impact on changing the minds of a generation of Americans about the Columbus legacy. Zinn not only maligned Columbus, but attacked the larger migration from the old world to the new that he ushered in. He, uh, it wasn't just Columbus who was a monster, according to Zinn. It was the uh, driving ethos of the civilization that ultimately developed in the wake of his discovery, the United States. Now, behind the English invasion of North America, Zinn wrote, behind their massacre of Indians, their deception, their brutality, was that special, powerful drive born of civilizations based on private profit. The truth is that Columbus set out for the New World, thinking he would spread Christianity to regions where it didn't exist. And while Columbus... And certainly his uh, Spanish benefactors had an interest in the goods and gold he could uh, return f- uh, from what they thought would be um, Asia. The explorer primary, uh, the explorers rather, primary motivation was religious. This conviction that God destined him to be an instrument for spreading the faith was far more potent than the desire to win glory, wealth, and worldly honors. Wrote historian Samuel Eliot Morrison over a half century ago. In fact, as contemporary historian uh, Carl Delaney noted, even the money Columbus sought was primarily dedicated to religious purposes. Delaney said in an interview with the Catholic. Fraternal Organization, the Knights of Columbus. Everybody knows that Columbus was trying to find gold, but that but they don't know what that gold was for, he writes, to fund a crusade to take Jerusalem back from the Muslims before the end of the world. A lot of people at the time thought that the apocalypse was coming because of all the signs, the plague, the famine, earthquake, and so forth. And it was believed that before the end, Jerusalem had to be back in Christian hands so that Christ could return in judgment. Well, Columbus critics don't just stop at accusing him of greed. One of the biggest allegations against him is that he waged a genocidal war and engaged in acts of cruelty against indigenous people in the Americas. Historians like Delaney have debunked this claim. Uh, Rather than cruel, they write Columbus was mostly benign in his interaction with native populations. And while deprivations did occur, Columbus was quick to punish those under his command who committed unjust acts against local populations. Columbus, he writes, strictly told the crew not to do things like uh, maraud, rape, and instead to treat the native people with respect, Delaney says. Uh, There are many examples of his writings where he gave instructions to this effect. Most of the time when injustices occurred, he was wasn't there. There were terrible diseases that got communicated to the natives, but he can't be blamed for that. End quote. Well, Columbus certainly wasn't a man without flaws as or attitudes that would be unacceptable today. That has been true throughout human history, with only one exception. But even as a man of an earlier age in which violence and cruelty were often the norm between different cultures and peoples, Columbus did not engage in the savage acts that have been pinned on him. In fact, to uh, to suggest that the peoples uh, in the lands that he inhabited were not engaged in savage acts uh, themselves would be a misreading of history. For much of the 19th and 20th century, most Americans were taught about Columbus, discovery of the New World school, in school. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, went a popular poem that uh, 
the Italian explorer who flew under the Spanish flag uh, was uh, noted by. At one time, Americans marveled at what seemed like an unbelievably courageous voyage across unknown waters with the limited tools and maps of the 15th century, discovering what for him and the Spanish people, or the Italian people rather, was a discovery. It's difficult in the 21st century to imagine what Columbus faced as he crossed the Atlantic in search of what he thought was a route to Asia. The hardship, the danger was immense. And if things went awry, there would uh, be nothing to save his little flotilla besides hope, prayer, and a little courage. Most people in the 1490s knew that the earth was round. However, Columbus made a nevertheless history-altering discovery. The world was a much bigger place than most uh, and had imagined. And though Columbus never personally realized the scope of his discovery, he opened up new world that would one day become a forefront of human civilization. This is the man and the history that earlier generations of Americans came to respect and admire no more. Unfortunately, Zen and others' uh, caricature of Columbus and American civilization has stuck in, struck in rather in an era in which uh, activists and some radicals searched the country for problematic statues to destroy Columbus being a prime example. It's also important to point out the uh, connection with the Ku Klux Klan. Much of the modern rhetoric about Columbus mirrors attacks lobbed at him in the 19th century by anti-Catholic and anti-Italian groups like the Ku Klux Klan. In fact, Columbus Day became a nationally celebrated holiday following a mass lynching of Italians in New Orleans, the largest incident of uh, lynching in American history. In 1892, the 400th anniversary of Columbus' uh, voyage, President Benjamin Harrison called for a national celebration of Columbus and his achievements. Americans patriotically celebrated Columbus and erected numerous statues in his honor as the country embraced. Though American uh, appreciation of Columbus deepened, some groups weren't pleased. As the pro-Columbus website The Truth About Columbus points out, the Ku Klux Klan worked to stop Columbus Day celebrations, smash statues, reverse his uh, growing influence on American culture. And according to The Truth about Columbus in the 1920s, the Klan attempted to remove Columbus Day as a state holiday in Oregon, burned a cross to disturb a Columbus Day celebration in Pennsylvania, and successfully opposed the erection of a statue of Columbus in Richmond, Virginia, only to see the decision to reject the statue reversed. Well, attempts to quash Columbus failed, but they have reemerged in our own time through the actions of other groups who want to see his legacy buried and diminished forever. We need to be realistic about uh, the legacy of all of our uh, heroes in quotes, making sure that we um, we don't deify them, that they are humanized. We recognize the the um, the, the consistent uh, thread of human history in which all flawed men bring with them their flaws when they land in places that are also flawed, and when uh, interaction occurs, there is uh, little more than flaw. And that's the case here as in every other human event. It would be tragic uh, to lose our generation and to uh, an understanding of any kind of the bravery and boldness of Columbus, the uh, the challenges of uh, meeting a people for the first time, the presumptions that we make. There's, a, there's much to be learned uh, if Columbus Day will survive. The question is, is this the last time we can celebrate Columbus Day? And will anybody take the time to really look at that history? I could talk about Karl Marx and his view of history as a product of the great class struggle between those who control the means of production and those who do not. That also connects with this growing controversy, but time will not permit. Education is always a good thing based on true facts. Quick break. We're going to be back in a moment. We'll talk with Michelle Howe, the book, Preparing, Adjusting, and Loving the Empty Nest. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock is our time. Well, there are more adult children living at home than are married. Nearly one in three, or 32.1% of 18 to 34-year-olds, are at home. The highest number in 130 years. And though the numbers are indisputable, the reason for the numbers is open to theory. Well, the Bible, or rather the biblical idea of leave and cleave is clearly not happening for many young adults. The failure to launch may be tied to economics, to relationships, or simply parents who are not raising mature adult children. My next guest, Michelle Howell, she's the author of Preparing, Adjusting, and Loving the Empty Nest. The bottom line is that many parents are not preparing their adult children to face the world as it is. Instead, many are coddling them, afraid to push them out for fear of the great unknown. We've raised a generation, she says, of young adults who are more comfortable not growing up than in taking responsibility for their lives. Well, my guest is uh, Michelle Howe. She is the author of 17 books, including Caring for Your Aging Parents, Lessons in Love, Loss and Letting Go, and Empty Nest, What's Next? Parenting Adult Children Without Losing Your Mind. She's published over a thousand articles, has uh, been featured on radio shows across the country, speaking on parenting and women's issues. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, Parenting, Adjusting and Loving the Empty Nest. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, some of our listeners might assume that this is a book about what to do once the kids are gone, but you really are taking a much longer view of preparing uh, for that empty nest uh, early on in the, uh, the the responsibility of raising your children. Yes. This book is separated into three parts, just like the title suggests. Mm-hmm. And the first part is just got, you know, 13 chapters about how you prepare. And I, I talk to parents uh, oftentimes and say, you know, you start preparing even when your kids are infants. And I know it sounds kind of crazy, but you have to face the fact that we raise our children to eventually leave. This is God's plan. So from the very beginning, you think to yourself, these kids are on loan to me, and I love them, and I cherish them, and I'll, you know, pour my life into them. But eventually, I want them to walk out of the door prepared you know, to face the world, and just as you cited in your introduction, to be members of society that can function and use their gifts and their talents and whatever it is that God has, you know, blessed them with to be, uh, you know, blessings to others and productive members of society. Well, you make the point in this section of the book that early on, parents should be aware of the fact that their primary role is to ultimately produce an, an empty nest in which their children are equipped and ready to, to step outside. And yet nearly one in three adult children live at home. Why do you think this is happening, and what are the long-term impacts? Well, one another interesting um, statistic is that 85% of college graduates move back home for a while before they actually leave for good. And I think there's something that parents need to think about. There's good reasons for your adult children to be mm-hmm. in their home, and there's poor reasons. Now, my son just graduated with, a, with his master's degree. He was home for two months, and now he's gone. That was a really nice interlude in between, you know, him coming back and then launching. You know, if you have a child who loses a job, perhaps they've gone through a divorce, Maybe there's, you know, a chronic illness or, you know, they, they file bankruptcy, whatever. You know, you want your home to be a haven I and mean, to have a place where people can go in your family when there's a crisis. But when they come back in, there should always be an exit plan 
set up pretty soon after they come back in. So people are on the same page, parents and adult children, knowing that, hey, we're working towards this goal. And you don't need to say, oh, you can only be here for three months or four months. But, you know, you should have steps in place where, you know, you're they're trying to find another job or they're going back to school or, you know, they're getting um, counseling in, in how to repair relational problems they may have, whatever it is. But I think too many parents have found it um, it's too easy for the kids just to stay home, and they haven't given them good reason to want to launch. And I think the word you use is great. We want our kids to launch, but we have to prepare them even as young as elementary school on up. Well, let's talk about some of the things that parents can do to prepare their children to leave home and become productive citizens. It's a big question, but give us just a couple of ideas. Well, one thing is I always think about wherever you, whatever stage of parenting you're at, give your children small steps of independence and, and be age-responsible, you know, steps that they can take. You know, if they're five or six, they can start cleaning up their room. They can, you know, make their beds. They can put their clothes away. You know, if they get a little older, they can take the garbage out. They can clean the house. They can take care of the animals. And you always are thinking to yourself, age-appropriate tasks at home, and then start letting them branch out, you know, in steps of independence. They start getting to maybe go um, on a, a week camp, you know, with their school or church function, whatever. You start, per, you know, preparing them by letting them grow incrementally as far as wh- how they can, you know, step out. You're still overseeing them They're in their safety zone, but they're feeling like, yes, they can take steps out. And every year, they should have a little bit more independence. And you, as a parent, give them that independence. You have to discipline yourself to realize someday you aren't going to be in the front lines of parenting. You're going to be stepping into the sidelines of parenting, and that's your ultimate goal, being on the sidelines, being the cheerleader, the occasional uh, person they come to for counsel and advice when asked, but you aren't going to be the frontline person anymore. And you want to... uh... Uh, to reach that day successfully. Now, you point out that parents often look to their children for friendship or to fill an emotional uh, void. Uh, Is there a danger in um, relating to your children as something other than parents? Obviously, you want to have a friendship with your children and you want to have an emotional attachment. But are, are there lines that one needs to maintain in order that your kids will launch successfully when the time comes? Absolutely. Uh, You know, men and women need peers. You know, women need female peers, men need male peers that they can talk to on subjects that are sensitive that their children should not be brought into those conversations. Now, I have four adult children. I have four grandchildren, you know, and I can say that I can go out with my adult children to a movie or to dinner or whatever. We can have a great time, and it could be kind of like a friendship, but I never forget that I'm still their mom. You know, they're still, they need their own peers. I need my own peers. We all need people in our own season of life that can really say, hey, me too, I'm right there. I'm facing the same doubts, the same fears, the same concerns, the same challenges. My kids need that. They need their own, you know, female friends and their male friends at their own age. And when we try to put on uh, or, or confide too much, let's say if you're in a troubled marriage or a marriage that's strained, you know, your kids already see it, but that you shouldn't be going to them for emotional support because they're still part of that family unit, and it's not right for you to pit your children against your spouse, first of all. And secondly, you put too much emotional pressure on them. They're not mature enough to handle Mm -hmm. it, you know, and then you end up with kids who are torn between mom and dad, and that should never be. Your book looks at a a longer-term approach to preparing uh, the whole family for the empty nest. What are some ideas for doing just that? 
Well, you know, you have a child that's uh, in high school and you know that they have the desire to go away to college, maybe out of state, maybe just out of the city, or maybe they're going to go to a vocational school, whatever it is. I like to suggest this to families to make it a family affair. So that means if you've got three kids in the family and the older one is going to leave, well, the other two kids and mom and dad can find a way to help that child launch successfully. And that might be one of your kids may love to research cities. They might like travel so they can find out all the best places to eat, you know, where are the best places to shop, whatever, the best parks, whatever it is the family likes to do. So they can give their older sibling, you know, hey, this is where you can do this and this and this. And then, you know, another child might be really great at, you know, being practical and helping them think, well, you're going to need all these things for your job or you're going to need these things for your new apartment. But whatever it is, you kind of make an overall plan and give each each person in the family, whatever, whatever area they're gifted in, wherever they're interested in, give them something that's going to get them excited about the kid who's leaving. And then you kind of have everybody that's mutually invested. It's not like, oh, you know, Johnny's moving away and the other two sibs are just kind of like not part of it. Make it a family affair so that even after that kid leaves, you know, the younger siblings will keep in touch because they've already become invested emotionally in the success of their older sibling. Now, we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with uh, Michelle Howell. Her book is titled Preparing, Adjusting, and Loving the Empty Nest. It's a companion to her earlier book, Empty Nest, What's Next? We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Michelle Lowe, she is, or Howe rather. She is the author of Preparing, Adjusting, and Loving the Empty Nest. There are stages, the first of which we've been talking about is preparing uh, your sons and daughters so that they can live independently and are prepared to launch. What are some of the challenges in that, uh, that second stage when you are adjusting? The nest is empty. Uh, and uh, life for you has changed dramatically. What are some of the challenges there? Well, I think for most parents, you have to realize that it's going to be uh, a blessing and, and sadness. And, you know, some, some parents are going to feel some real definite grief because they either come home from work or if it's the mom, the stay-at-home mom. During the day, the, the house is just different. The whole dynamics changes, you know, when one person leaves. Not that it's a bad thing, but it is a different different atmosphere. And I like to tell people that, you know, men and women can grieve differently, but allow your spouse to grieve in the way that they need to. Don't deny that it's, you know, you're feeling sad or feeling down, but don't get stuck there indefinitely. I mean, when we really look at it, you know, when you have a person in your family, such as a child who leaves, but someone you love, the appropriate response is to be sad because someone you love is not going to be around as much anymore, and that's appropriate. But you don't allow yourself to get stuck there. I I remember one mom telling me years after her sons had moved on that she still cried every day, that she had to call them every day. And she said, but this is just how God made me. And I I wanted just to cry out and say, no, God didn't make you to be grief-stricken for years. He wanted you to accept the fact that your kids are adults and rejoice that they're successful and doing well, but find new people to build into and to, you know, serve and to get involved with once your kids move away. The third um, area that you write about is loving the empty nest, that transition from preparing while the children, the young people are still in the home, uh, and then adjusting to the empty nest, but actually loving. What is ultimately the goal as you are making your way through that transition? 
I think the goal from those three stages is, first of all, is to accept it. First, and face it and realize, as I said earlier, we're always in motion. Life is always in motion. So whatever season you're in right now, it probably won't be very long before there's going to be new changes. And that's just the essence of life. And also realizing the overall picture of life, you know, God designed us to, to be young, to be middle-aged, to be older. There's birth, there's middle-aged, you know, there's death. It's all part of our existence on planet Earth. And you have to say, well, what is God's purpose for me at each season? Now, when you're in that primary uh, parenting season, probably most of your energy is spent with your family and your kids and raising them. Well, once they move out or start to move out, you even get busy in college or in their jobs and even could be living in your home for a while, but they're in and out so much you don't see them often. You have to look at your own life and say, okay, what does God want for me now? And your life is going to look different, but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. I try to remind women who are feeling low or sad or just not sure what they're going to do now that their parenting role has so shifted. And I say, call upon all your experience, all your gifts, all your talents, all the wisdom that you have painfully learned through the ups and downs of real life and ask God to bring new people, new volunteer opportunities, new work opportunities. Maybe you're going to go back to school, but you still have a whole lot of living to do, and God will use you in other people's lives, you know, down the road if your children get married, they're in your grandchildren's lives, and it's not that you're your adult children aren't part of your life. But again, you're on the sidelines of your, their life now, and that's a good thing for them emotionally. And it will be for you, too, if you can transition into that with more of a positive, I'm going to, um, you know, really look for the next best thing in my life and not wallow in what was. One of the things I appreciate in that section of the book, Loving the Empty Nest, is you suggest um, starting new family traditions and making coming home special for your grown children and perhaps grandchildren. Yeah. You know, we, like I said, we have four adult children and two are married. And, you know, when your children get married, they have all new set of family responsibilities with their new spouse, with their spouse's parents, grandparents. And, you know, especially in our age where half of families are there's divorce involved too, you know, you've got could be four new family, you know, units that you have to visit through the holidays. So we have tried to just talk to our kids, find out what works for each child and compromise, you know, and pick a certain day. And it doesn't have to be on Thanksgiving or on Easter or on Christmas. I think parents get too hung up on the day of the holiday when really they should be focusing on spending time quality time with their family on a day that works for everybody and never pressure your adult kids to have to show up. I find that some moms and dads still believe that shaming their kids into visiting and coming Mm -hmm. around and especially on the holidays is going to work. It doesn't work. No one likes to be shamed. And if you are greeting your adult children with, oh, it's about time or, wow, I haven't seen you in weeks and weeks, they aren't going to want to come back right away because no one wants that kind of greeting. You know, they're already investing time in visiting you, and then you're putting a guilt trip on them, and it just does not work. It's not effective parenting. Yeah. You um, encourage in this section of the book, Loving the Empty Nest, that um, that parents remember the past accurately, not romantically, but that they also reintroduce romance in their marriage. You start out, uh, for, for the most part, you start out without children, um, reintroducing romance can be a real challenge at this other end of the, the life continuum. Oh, it sure can because 
for most families, they've spent the bulk of their marriage in the parenting season. So they've gotten so used to mom, dad, and kids that it's really hard to go back to mom and dad, husband and wife. You know, and I, what I've done with my husband, and we've been married almost 33 years now, and we realize we're both type A, you know, busy, you know, innovative people, and we can get so involved in our own work that we don't, you know, really have time for fun. And so we have scheduled in Saturday morning, we go off to breakfast, and it becomes like a highlight of our week because we just kind of decompress and enjoy the time together. And isn't the only time we have, but we found that we really talk and talk and talk. And I like to ask couples to really think about talking and talking and talking and then more than talking, become a really good listener. Very few of us are really good listeners I always thought I was a great listener until my husband said, you aren't listening to me. And then I had to really, you know, sit back and say, okay, what am I not hearing? So, you know, I think we have to encourage each spouse to really listen to the heart's cry and the desire of your spouse's heart. You've probably been married a long time. You know they've changed. You've changed. We all grow and change and mature. And then start finding ways to have activities together, to serve together, whatever it is that's going to be meaningful for you. But reinvent what you probably have let slide a bit because you were so exhausted and so tired or maybe just distracted by, you know, parenting and, and crises that you were handling with your kids. Now, what do you um, what do you do when you feel stuck after years into the empty nest season of life? You know, when I feel stuck, I and there's very few moments that I do feel stuck. But every once in a while, I will start getting lost in some of the early memories of parenting. You know, where I think, oh, I wish my kids were still here on Christmas morning and they were opening up their gifts, or I remember when we would go on a vacation. And that is partly what I cover in remembering the past accurately, Mm -hmm. not romantically, because we all tend to remember just the the fluffy, wonderful moments. And I talk about a vacation we had where all of my kids were sick. They were all on medicines. And and my daughter threw up in the car. My other daughter had ear infections. It was blistering hot. We were pretty miserable the entire vacation. But the other part of me could say, oh, wasn't that just a wonderful vacation? And to be truthful, it wasn't. It was great (laughs) that we were together, but it wasn't what I had dreamed of. (laughs) And I think you have to remember every season has its challenges. I know I remember looking back and thinking, oh, the next season will be a little bit easier once our kids are all on diapers. Oh, the next season will be a little easier once we get them through middle school. But you know what? Looking back now that I'm 57, 60 almost here and I have four grandkids, I think I wish I would have lived more in the moment. And I know that sounds trite, but really have a heart that's thankful and grateful for today because we are not guaranteed tomorrow. Life changes so fast and it's so fragile. Yeah, absolutely. The book again is Preparing, Adjusting, and Loving the Empty Nest. It takes you through the stages of that process. It's a companion to Empty Nest, What's Next. Michelle Howell, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so much. Have a good good day. You too. By the way, the book is published published by Hendrickson Publishers and is available where books are sold. We've got uh, well, a break coming up. We're going to take that. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Welcome back. This is the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind pastors and associates, including their uh, their spouses, that tomorrow morning is our Pastor Appreciation Breakfast, 8 o'clock a.m. at the Embassy Suites by Hilton Portland Airport. We're looking forward to uh, um, just encouraging you in your ministry and taking the opportunity to let you know how grateful we are for your faithful service in our community. Again, the 2017 Pastors Appreciation Breakfast at Embassy Suites by the Hilton Portland Airport. By the way, if you need directions or a map, you can go to kpdq.com. The address is there as well as directions if you need them. Well, October, of course, is Pastor Appreciation Month, and uh, it's an opportunity for us to be reminded because oftentimes we need to be reminded to do what should not require being reminded, but that is to acknowledge and to support and encourage and thank those who serve uh, in ministry. Now, they don't do it for that purpose. They haven't uh, designated this season for themselves. We are doing that because we recognize the tremendous gift that uh, the leaders who have been called and appointed by God to serve are to the body of Christ. And so we take this opportunity to kind of, um, you know, exercise those gratitude muscles as we address uh, and direct our attention to pastors, associates, their spouses, their families, and so on. So I hope you'll take full advantage of the opportunity to uh, to say thank you and perhaps ask a question or two. How can we encourage you better? What concerns you most about you and your family as you minister in our congregation? Um, what are your uh, concerns about the future in terms of uh, your financial security, and what can we do to help you, um, uh, you know, lay some of those pressures? You know, those kinds of questions might be. In order, well, I noted that there has been a, a pastor uh, being held in Turkey. He's been there. We're marking about the, the one year point. He's entering his second year. Turkey's president has, for the first time, confirmed publicly that the American pastor that was jailed for the past twelve months there is being held as a political hostage. Now, whether or not that actually applies, that's a different matter. In a speech at his presidential palace last Thursday. Uh, President Erdogan, he openly called on the United States to exchange Pastor Andrew Brunson for Muslim cleric uh, Fatula Gulan, a Turkish citizen living in exile here in the United States. He's been here since 1991, uh, rather 1999. He's accused of uh, masterminding last year's failed coup via international network of followers. The U.S. says, give us the pastor back, Erdogan said. You have one pastor of ours as well. The pastor we have, Brunson, is on trial. Gulan is not. He is living in Pennsylvania. Give him to us. You can easily give him to us. You can give him right away. Then we will try Bunsen, or rather Brunson, and give him to you. Well, Erdogan repeated uh, his demands to both the Obama and Trump administrations to extradite uh, the cleric that he's interested in back to Turkey. Uh, Turkey, rather, have not been successful. Turkey has launched a massive internal crackdown over the past 15 months to identify and punish what it calls FETO, the Fethullah Terror Organization. It's a network accused of infiltrating Turkey's army forces and government. More than 50,000 suspected judges, prosecutors, soldiers, academics, journalists, human rights activists, police officers have all been jailed. And you can add to that list Christian pastor. Uh, they've been held for months in pre-trial detention. Now, this pastor that we're talking about has been held for over a year now. So Andrew Brunson uh, has been held in a pre-trial detention and has not been given due process, has not been apprised of the charges and so on. Since last October, Brunson has been one of these prisoners. He remains jailed without any written indictment explaining his alleged charges or providing any evidence against him. Judicial proceedings remain stalled there and have for the last year. And his lawyer continues to be 
uh, refused access to the sealed file of accusations against him. He was first detained to be deported as a threat to national security. He lived in Turkey for some 23 years. He's been involved in legally recognized church-related ministries there. Uh, So this came as something of a surprise. Two months after his surprise detention in the port city of Izmir, uh, where he led the small Izmir Resurrection Church. He was formally arrested on accusations of involvement in unspecified terrorism activities. The presiding judge at his December 2016 hearing referred verbally to allegations linking him to uh, this uh, cleric who is in exile here to his movement. Well, vague reports then appeared in the pro-government Turkish media reiterating claims that Brunson's terrorism charges were related to his alleged membership in the Islamic cleric network. Uh, Now, a Christian pastor in the Islamic clerics network does seem nonsensical. Nonetheless, those are the charges that are at least being publicly made. This past March, Turkey's prime minister denied that Brunson was being held as a political bargaining chip to obtain uh, extradition of their exile, Gulan, telling a visiting USA Today reporter that such an idea was nonsensical. These matters are separate. Well, then, a recent, uh, as recently, rather, as uh, August, Brunson was informed that even more allegations have been filed against him in a, an Izmir court, uh, charging him with spying to, uh, uh, to obtain secret political and military information to overthrow the Tur- Turkish government and undermine the country's constitutional Order. Well, American pastor Andrew Brunson has uh, begun his second year behind bars in Turkey with no sign that the Islamist government is inclined to heed U.S. calls to release him. Brunson is a native of Black Mountain, North Carolina. He ministered with his wife in Turkey for more than 20 years, I believe 23, before he was arrested in October last year, swept up in President Erdogan's mass crackdown on those he accuses of links to an unsuccessful coup attempt in mid-2016. President Trump, Vice President Pence, they've uh, both brought up the subject with Erdogan to no avail. Last month, late last month, the Turkish leader hinted that he could free the pastor in exchange for the U.S. extraditing Falutha, uh, uh, Fethullah, rather, Gulan, a U.S.-based Turkish imam Erdogan holds responsible. Well, last week, a delegation of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent statutory body, was able to visit the pastor in prison and reported that he has lost more than 50 pounds from the stress of his ordeal. And after initially being held for, uh, with some 20 other prisoners in a cell designed to accommodate eight, he was later moved to a prison where he is uh, confined for 24 hours a day with two other men also accused of membership in this movement. He lives in a world of psychic and physical dislocation, says one of the commission's two vice chairs. Despite a public veneer of a legal process, the truth is Pastor Brunson has had no due process, no true information about his charges, of uh, charges brought against him, unreliable court dates, and no idea whenever, again, he will see his children or his country. Well, the organization said the charges brought against him were fabricated and based on secret testimony. She called for his immediate release, as have others. During this Pastor Appreciation Month, let's remember to pray for those who serve in places where the gospel is not welcome and they are willing to lead because God has called them. And do remember Pastor uh, American Pastor Andrew Brunson, who is currently being held in prison. Taking a quick look at uh, the remainder of this week, on Tuesday, we're going to talk with Pastor Clenard Childress and Jackie Hawkins. They are with the Genocide Awareness Project. We'll explain all of that when they join us here tomorrow. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Chip Ingram. He's the author of Why I Believe, Straight Answers to Honest Questions About God, the Bible, and Christianity. We're also going to talk with Joan Lippis. She is back in the U.S. She's the uh, director of Novea Ministries. She's also holding a... Um, 
uh, weekend seminar on Israel. We'll give you the details on that as well. So those are some of the things that we are anticipating later this week. Well, I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.